You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. A reading from Colossians 3, 5 through 17. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, what is, oh, what is idolatry? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you two once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all, the, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and abomishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. Uh, we have been this semester going through a series uh, talking about how people change. And the Bible has a technical word for this. The technical Bible word is sanctification, which we've been saying is the lifelong process that God takes you through, that God sh- changes you so that you become the, the person that you were created to be. And last week, what I, what I tried to submit to y'all is that you were created to be loved and to love. That's your purpose as a human being, to be loved and to love. That's why you're breathing right now. But here's, here's, a, uh, here's a brilliant observation. You cannot love by yourself. To love anything is inherently, unavoidably relational. So in regards to our discussion this semester, Uh, You cannot change into being the kind of person you were created to become by yourself. Your changing, your transformation, your sanctification is a community project. It's a a team sport. You you cannot change by yourself. You need a community. Community is the context in which people change. Now, I know the word community is such a buzzword. It feels like Everyone loves community. We love community. Community, community, just that word. We're obsessed with the word community. We love community. And so my, what I want to question tonight is do we, do we even know what it is? Do we do it and do we even know what it is? And I want to begin by telling you a story about my wife who's here and she gave me permission to tell you the story. She has a friend that she has kind of this friendly competition with one of her buddies as to which of the two is the, is the more outdoorsy of the two. So Catherine will buy something from Patagonia and like snap a pic to her friend like I'm the most outdoorsy. And then her friend 
bought a Subaru and took a picture. Is like, I'm the most outdoorsy. And like, Catherine, you know, when we got REI in town, Catherine's like in front of REI, I'm the most outdoorsy. And they go back and forth like this, but here's what's funny about my wife. She hates the outdoors. <laughs> Which is, it's extreme, maybe that's too extreme. She just, she hates camping. I would say she rarely ventures into the great outdoors. She goes outside, like when she gets out of her car and goes to the grocery store or vice versa. But in terms of like going into like the woods, not her thing. But she likes the idea of being outdoorsy because it's cool, but she doesn't necessarily like being outdoorsy. Now, I I begin that way because I, I totaled it up and I have spent a total of 18 years of being on or around a college campus. And of my 18 years of data on getting to know college students, here's what I have concluded. College students love the idea of community, but actually rarely do it. And by, um, by community, what I'm talking about specifically tonight is, is really Christian community. Authentic, deep, personal, Christian community the way in which it was designed. And I, and I think this passage in front of us is actually really helpful. This whole passage is Paul's unpacking what Christian community actually is. Some of you might know that when the Bible was written, it was not written in English. It was written in Greek, and Bible scholars translated it from Greek into English. But one of the problems that scholars run into is that there is not an English word we have no English word for pluralizing the word you. We do in the South, right? We say y'all. That's how we pluralize you. But in you know, technical academic language, there is no pluralizing of the word you. So when you read this passage and it talks about you, 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 it sounds like Paul's just writing to personal individual people. But the actual Greek in which Paul is writing, he's, he's, he's it's all plural, This is his passage of what it looks like to to have a Christian community, life spiritually lived out together. So I think this is going to be really helpful. I hope it will be. And what I want to do is look at this passage really under three different headings. Let's look at first the power against Christian community. And then secondly, the power of Christian community. And then the power for Christian community. If that's too confusing, just against, of, and for. There you go. So let's, let's be, what do I mean when, I, when we say the power against Christian community? What, what is the threat to this thing called community? Well, look at verse 5. We'll start at the beginning. Verse 5. It's a very good place to start. Sound of music? There you go. Got one. Uh, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, when he talks about something being earthly in you, he's talking about your old self. In fact, he makes this very explicit. A couple verses later, look at verse 9. You have put off the old self with its practices. Now, when the Bible talks about your old self, this is talking about who you were before you were united to Jesus by faith. This is the old you. And remember, we've been saying often throughout the semester, that your old self was defined and dominated and driven by three things. What I do, what I have, and what people think of me. But Paul says, that's not who you are anymore. You've put off your old self. And look at verse 10. 
You have put on the new self. In Christ, there's a whole new you. There's a whole, you're a whole new creation. But here's the thing. If that's true, why does Paul have to say in verse 5, you have to put these things to death? Why does he tell you in verse 8, but now you've got to put these things away? And here's why. Because, as we've said earlier throughout the semester, it's just easy to forget who you are. It's easy to revert back into old self default mode. And to illustrate this, um, I recently heard about David Letterman reflecting on how, how it felt to go out in front of the crowd and out in front of the camera every single night over and over and over. And here's what he said. He says this, quote, Every night you're trying to prove your self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished... It makes me feel like an entire person. If I've come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. And I love how honest he's being because he's just describing in vivid detail what life looks like lived out in old self mode. There's anxiety about how people are perceiving me. There's pressure to keep performing, pressure to keep up appearances. There's shame when I don't keep up, which leads to exhaustion because it feels like I have to keep up. Those are all the trademarks of living out of your old self. So what happens if you get a bunch of people living in old self mode and they all come together and form a community? What happens? You have a toxic, unhealthy community. And here's what this would look like. This would look like everybody projecting a version of themselves. Not their real selves, but a version of themselves. You know, Chris Rock said, when you meet somebody for the first time, you don't meet them, you meet their representative. And I think he's right. When you're living out of old self mode, you feel like, I can't present my real self. I've got to present like a PR version of myself. I want people to see me as the most good-looking, as the funniest, as the smartest, as the most spiritual, as the craziest, as the, you know, whatever. Like, we have all of these different versions of ourselves that we want to present so that people relate to not the real us, but a version of us. You know, some of us, a, a few weeks ago, were reflecting on our senior quotes from our yearbooks, and I was so, I was so embarrassed to have to tell mine uh, because my senior quote was a quote from the 1999 hit song by Will Smith, Getting Jiggy With It. <laughs> and the line was, <laughs> the line was, you know I go psycho. That was my senior year quote. <laughs> you know I go psycho. When my new joint hits, just can't sit. Got to get jiggy with it. So you know what I'm saying? But that was my line. My line was, you know I go psycho. And it's, and it's embarrassing to me now because it was so, it's so obvious to me now looking back what I was doing. I so desperately wanted to people think I was the crazy guy. I was like the, I was the guy. I wanted, hear me out. You're, 
you're going to lose all respect for me in about three minutes. Um, I was the guy that wanted everybody to look at him and say, that dude, just he doesn't give a crap about anything. He doesn't give a crap about what people think. I wore 13 pieces of jewelry. <laughs> 12 disciples plus Jesus. Uh, the, the jewelry included earrings, an anklet, and a toe ring. I painted my fingernails and my toenails. I bleached my hair blonde. I had it, when I had hair, I spiked it up. Don't think goth. Think like Dennis Rodman. That was my, <laughs> that was my hero. But I, so, I wanted people to think that dude just doesn't care about what anybody thinks about him. And it struck me later in my life, I cared a whole lot about being the kind of person where other people would think he doesn't care a whole lot about what other people think of him, which just shows you I'm literally dominated by what other people think of me. That's old self behavior. That's life as your old self, projecting yourself to the world, hoping that they relate to a version of you, not the real you. So when you get a whole bunch of people in a room like that and everybody's projecting versions of themselves, it inherently becomes competitive. It inherently becomes a competition. And this, this even happens in the name of Christian community. Christian community can be the most competitive, toxic environment that there is, where everybody is subtly, passively humble bragging or casually name dropping or kind of spiritually flexing. And, and everybody is doing these things to kind of outdo each other. And when you get into a community like this, it feels like you're just on a perpetual interview where everybody's evaluating you. And the reason why it feels like that is because that's what's happening. Everyone's evaluating you, and let's be honest, you're doing the same thing. You're ranking everybody. And so when you rank, when you go into a community and you begin to size up and rank where people are, you've got people below you and you've got people above you, and the people below you make you feel good about yourself because they're losing at life and you're winning. But then you also have people that you would say are above you, and how you relate to those people are, are interesting. Either one, you so desperately want them to like you, and so you flatter them, and you get around them, and you, and you try to impress them so that they give you access into their friend group. <laughs> or you so despise them and resent them and don't want anything to do with them. You're literally angry at that kind of person because they're winning and you're not. You think that they're above you and so you gossip about them behind their back to bring them down. You've got to find some way to get them beneath you so you maliciously, out of anger, you slander them. And look at what Paul says when he speaks to this kind of toxic community. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. I've been around Christian communities like this, and it's just toxic. And some of you may be around um, Christian communities right now that are implicitly teaching you that you have to lie in order to belong. If you want to fit in, then you have to be a certain way that you're not. So you've got to smile and you've got to pretend that you're a certain way. You've got to button up. You've got to have a certain personality type, which is bubbly and extroverted and passionate. And you are not allowed to have any real problems or any real struggles or any real needs. 
Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, talks about this form of fake, toxic Christian community as the, quote, pious fellowship, kind of in a snarky way. He's, he's referring to this as the pious fellowship. And let, me, let me read a little, a little snippet. He says this, The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Here's the deal. The power against having authentic Christian community is operating out of your old self. When you are dominated by what I do, what I have, what people think of me, then you create a culture of competition and envy and pride and shame and self-righteousness and lying and hiding and exhaustion. And you cannot grow if you're a part of a community like that. If you're a part of a community like that, you know, what's crazy about this is that this can happen, like I said, even in overtly Christian communities, where you can be in a Christian community and you can be winning within that particular culture. And so you can be leading Bible studies and reading the Bible every day and having intense worship experiences and you're not hooking up and you're not getting drunk. And yet, on the inside, this culture is feeding the old self, the old pride, what I do, what I have, what people think of me, and there's the shame, and there's the self-righteousness, and there's the pride, and there's the lying, and there's the pretending, and there's the exhaustion. That's not sanctification. But that's the power against Christian community. It's, it's living out of your old self. So then what is the power of Christian community? How, how can authentic community Christian community actually change you not to feed your old self, but to help you kill it. And really, under the second point, what I originally wanted to do was was name this this, uh, point the nature of Christian community, because really, as I was studying this, Paul lays out this thick, concentrated, dense treatment of what a Christian community is supposed to look like. In fact, let me just give you a little samplage. Can we go samplage? Look at verse 11. He says, here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He is saying within the Christian community, there's no status distinctions. We're all on the same level playing field before the cross. Everything's equalized. Let's keep going. Look at verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. I mean, good, wouldn't you want to be a part of a friend group like that? Compassionate hearts, meek, patient, bearing with each other. Let's keep going. Look at verse 13. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. He's saying Christian community is marked by grace and forgiveness, but not just grace and forgiveness, it's love. Look at, look at verse 13, sorry, 14. Above all these, put on love. And he keeps going. Verse 15 talks about peace. 
Verse 16 talks about being truth tellers. 15, 16, and 17 talk about thankfulness and gratitude. Verse 17 talks about the entire community shaped by Jesus. So here's what I was going to do. I was going to, under this point too, I was going to highlight eight different features of what a Christian community is and what it is marked by. And I was going to go into detail under each of these little eight subheadings. I was going to say a Christian community is marked by inclusion and diversity and grace and love and peace and truth and gratitude in Jesus. And it would have been an hour and a half long sermon and it would have been counterproductive and ironic because you would have hated the Christian community of RUF as a result. So I'm not going to do that. But I do want to answer the question, what would it, how would being a part of that kind of community actually change you if you were involved in a community like that? What is the power there that could actually sanctify you? That's the question. And by the way, uh, I'm getting a lot of help here from one of my friends, Richie Sessions, who's the RUF campus minister at Vandy. Don't know why I pointed in the back. He's not back there. But thanks, Richie. <laughs> So thanks, thanks, Richie, for all this help. Um, he quotes a, a Christian psychologist named Chip Dodd, who lives in Nashville. And Chip Dodd says this, your ability to grow is directly linked to your ability to ask for help. Think about that for a second. Your ability to grow is directly linked to your ability to ask for help. Asking for help, that is a new self-instinct. Asking for help is a new self-impulse. What is it that makes a Christian a Christian? A Christian is someone who needs Jesus and they know it. And so they ask him for help. You know, we sing the song you know, a lot here. I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. Doesn't that sound weak and desperate? I need Jesus every hour. That's what a Christian is, someone that weak. You know, I, I've heard the criticism against Christians. You know, Christians are people that, that just need God as like a crutch to get through life. And I want to say, absolutely. What it means to be a Christian is that you are so weak and so desperate. You are clinging onto Jesus for dear life just to make it through the day. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let, I'll give you a little, one of the, a little secret of the universe. You want a secret of the universe? Free of charge tonight? Weakness is the way. You want freedom, you want life, you want strength. Guess how you get it? Weakness. Let me, let me show you what I mean by this. Look at verse 13. Paul says, bearing with one another. In fact, he gets more explicit in a different letter in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens. What are What are burdens? burdens are what, what trouble you, what weigh you down. It's, it's your fear about the future. It's your loneliness. It's, it's the issues you have with your family. It's your, the pain over the breakup. It, it's your, your anxiety. It's your insecurities about, uh, about being around girls or guys. It's, it's everything that all of us are just carrying around all the time. Everybody in this room and everybody on this campus is carrying around burdens, whether or not we know it. And so part of what it means to be a part of a Christian community is that you bear each other's burdens. But here's a brilliant observation. Somebody can't bear your burden unless they know what it is. 
Nobody can help you bear your burden if you don't tell them. So what this means is you have to start telling people what you're burdened by. And if you're anything like me, you hate this because you don't want to be a burden. In fact, I've heard students, I've said this. I don't want to just volunteer my junk onto somebody. I don't want to be a burden to them. They've got problems of their, of their own. When you bear your burdens, when you share what's actually going on inside of you to somebody else, it makes you feel so weak and helpless and desperate. But that is the key. That's the key to your transformation, and that is the key to connecting in real community. This is kind of where the rubber hits the road. This is the fork in the road where you, where you go from liking the idea of community to actually doing it. This is, this is when you stop liking the idea of camping and you actually go. What this actually means is that you tell people what's going on inside of you. But again, we hate this. It, it, what I want it to be is like, Jesus, I just want this to be like a me and you thing. I'll, I'll be raw and honest and vulnerable. I'll give, you, I'll give you all of my junk. That way I don't have to give anybody else any junk so that I can look good in front of everybody else and people don't see me as weak and a mess. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. There's no such thing as a personal relationship with Jesus. Meaning just a merely personal, just me and Jesus, that's not how it works. The way that it works is that you are raw and vulnerable, not just with Jesus, but with each other. Your ability to grow is directly linked to your ability to ask for help. Here's the question. Do you know how to ask for help? Do you know how to get with a trusted friend and make yourself weak and let them in on what's going on inside of you? I'll be honest. I feel like such a hypocrite talking about this because this is not how I'm naturally wired. I am not a verbal processor. I'm an internal processor. I, I keep my cards close to my chest. I, I, I don't, it just feels weird to me to call up a friend and voluntarily just dump junk on them. So this is, a, this is a new muscle I'm having to learn how to kind of work out as well. But I'll, I'll tell you the story. A number of years ago, I was asked to teach a seminar kind of thing about preaching to a room full of pastors, a bunch of other RUF pastors. This was at a RUF, one of our staff training things that we do. And so I taught this class, and I thought it went well, and I was asked to come back and do it the next year. And so I did it. The next year I was there, but only the, the second year, there were, there were two of like my supervisors that were kind of sitting in the back listening in, which is a little unnerving. It's kind of like when you're the teacher and like the principal like sits in on your class. You're just kind of like, well, why are you there? And so I was teaching this class, and they're in the back, and I thought it went well, it went fine. And then, so like the next year rolls around and I don't get the email to teach the class again. And I felt so insecure. I was like, oh my gosh, I said something that was wrong or I presented something that they didn't like. Or... And inside was this swirl of insecurity and just feeling like I'm a failure, but I feel entitled to this. So now I'm wrestling with my own pride. Why do I feel like I have to be asked to do this? And I'm just walking around doing life with this burden, doing RUF, hanging out with my family, hanging out with y'all. And I'm just doing life. But at the time, 
I had these regular morning phone calls scheduled with one of my friends where we were trying to practice this thing of sharing and bearing each other's burdens. And so I called him and I said, hey, I just want to tell you what's going on inside of me. And I, and I told him, and I felt so stupid. I felt so embarrassed because I just, I mean, now he sees how vain I am and how insecure I am. And that's not the version I want anybody to see. I want people to see I'm the crazy guy, not the I'm vain and insecure and I want everybody to like me guy. But I told him, and in my feeling stupid, in my feeling like yucky, he thanked me for telling him. He said, Matt, that, that took a lot of courage to share that. Thank you. And then he reminded me of Jesus' love for me, and he prayed for me, and he said, I'll talk to you tomorrow. We hung up. Now, what was the result of that phone call for me? I felt weaker, and yet I felt more hooked into the grace and the love of Jesus because I experienced it in like a safe context. And at the same time, I felt more connected to my friend because he saw me for who I really am of what I really struggle with, and he loved me in the face of it. So I'm connected more to Jesus. I feel weaker. I feel more connected to him. I'm becoming less. Jesus is becoming more. That's sanctification. But that doesn't happen when you bottle it up, when you stuff it, when you pretend that it's not real and you just smile. People connect with you and you can have acquaintances and you can have a lot of fun and y'all can play Fortnite and y'all can laugh, but you don't get that. You don't get deep connection where you become less and Jesus becomes more. So here's the application. You have to break the silence. Break your silence with someone that you consider a trusted friend. Because community doesn't happen unless you do. They can't bear your burdens unless you do. That's the power of community. Power against Christian community power of Christian community. Here's the last thing, and I'll be quick. The power for Christian community. And and really the question here is, how can you get the power to be that kind of person that volunteers your junk? How can you be the kind of person that bears other people's stories? How How do you get the power to do that? And here's the answer. You remember who you are in Jesus. In Christ, You already have this power. So that's what Paul does in this story or in this passage. He reminds his listeners, his audience, who they are. Look at verse 12. He says, put on then, and then he tells them and reminds them who they are. Who are y'all? Oh, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's who you are. He uses these three big ideas, chosen ones. He says, you need to remember that you were chosen from before the foundation of the world. God loves you and he has set his love on you. He chose you. And you are holy, meaning you are distinct. You are separate. You're special to him. And number three, you are beloved. That's who you are. Loved of God. Loved by God. Y'all remember the, the movie and the musical Annie? Remember little orphan Annie? She's She's the... You know, she's living the hard knock life. She's cleaning up everything. And um, 
one day this bazillionaire Daddy Warbucks adopts her and like brings her into her his family. And so the first time that she's brought out of the orphanage and she shows up at his opulent McMansion, she's just looking around. She got her eyes are saucers and she's like, whoa. And the, the woman that's escorting her around says, well, Annie, what, what do you want to do? What's the first thing you want to do? And Annie goes, well, I guess I'll start with cleaning the windows and then I'll and I'll get to the floors, and then, and then the lady interrupts her and goes, well, no, 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 that's not who you are anymore. You don't have to do any of that. Just like Annie, just like the Colossians, we forget who we are. But the power to do this kind of community is to remember, whoa, 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 that's not who I am anymore. I, am, I have a new self in Christ to be something else. Most mornings, I pray this prayer. I got it from an older pastor, and I pray it most mornings, and it goes like this. Lord God, help remind me that my calling is to know how much I am loved by you and to love others with the overflow of that love. And I have to pray that every day, every morning, because I forget. God, help remind me what my, what my purpose is, why I'm breathing, my calling is to know how much I'm loved by you and then to love others with the overflow of that love. How can you actually know that you're loved by God and not just because some 25-year-old bald man told you on a Tuesday night? Here's how you can know that you're loved. Romans 5.8 puts it like this. God demonstrated his love. God showed you his love for us this way, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When you look at the cross, that is what begins to define you. You only know yourself in light of the cross because what the cross tells you is that you are loved. Even though you're a mess, even though you struggle, even though you are vain and you are uh, short-sighted and you have insecurities and you wrestle and you have shame and you've got addictions and you've got secrets like I do, the cross tells you you are loved. And when you begin to taste the actual grace and love of God at the cross, that's what makes you a gracious person. That's what makes you the kind of person that is safe, where people just sense That person is compassionate and empathetic and can hear and handle my story. That's what makes you an honest person, somebody that can actually come clean with your junk. The cross is what actually sanctifies you. So here's the invitation I want to close with tonight. I want to invite you to ponder the cross afresh and to drink deeply from the love of God that you find there. And I want to invite you to break your silence with a trusted friend. Because these two things work like a feedback loop. The more grace and love that you drink in, the more you're empowered to share your burdens. And when you share your burdens with a close friend and they give you grace and love in Jesus' name back, that's what lets you taste the grace and love of God in a tangible, concrete way. And round and round we go. And like a drill, it's drilling deeper and deeper and deeper into your heart. And you become sanctified. You become less. He becomes more. But you must break your silence.
me pray. I pray, Father, that you would give us the freedom and the confidence in Jesus to be honest, to be honest about our issues and our struggles and our problems, that we might find a friend in a community that can look at us in the face and tell us they love us and remind us that Jesus loves us and help us in a tangible way to taste and experience your grace. Father, I pray that you would have RUF be this. I pray that RUF would be a safe, gracious, hospitable, loving, inclusive community that knows and drinks deeply the grace of Jesus, where people who are hurting and wounded and struggling can come and not have to pretend, but that can actually find a home. And Father, wherever we're connected, I pray that you would give us that. Give us communities that actually feed our new selves and starve the old one. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.